All right, good morning, everyone. We are in Pastor Wolfmuller's book, Has American Christianity Failed? And we're talking about conscience. We did that last week. And we're going to finish that out uh, this week, move on to just a brief look at suffering, and then that'll bring this chapter to an end. Next chapter has to do with love. Let's begin with an invocation and prayer. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. Last week, as we were looking at conscience, we were seeing two different ways in which uh, conscience becomes damaged. So if you turn back to page 158, 159, you can see Wolf Mueller talking about a calloused conscience. If you remember, that is a conscience that's less active than it should be or not attuned to God's word where it should be. That's danger number one, a calloused conscience. And danger number two was an evil conscience, as Wolf Mueller uh, refers to it. I'm not exactly sure I'd choose that nomenclature, but he's chosen this uh, to be the label for a conscience that accuses us where it should not. So an overactive conscience in that sense. And um, we talked about that in terms of scrupulosity, a conscience that's constantly inventing sins that aren't sins. I think as you look at um, the American landscape, and especially those who are, as the scriptures say, dead in their trespasses and sins, you can see both of these aspects at work in them. You can see a damaged conscience, a calloused conscience, uh, specifically in, obviously, the progressivism that just keeps going from one degree of lawlessness to another and to just you know, anything, any abomination under the sun, stuff that <laughs> pagan nations of old would even shake their heads at, uh, continues on. Well, very frequently in those same people, and on the other side of the coin, there is an evil conscience or an overly scrupulous conscience. So that, you know, killing a baby in the womb, okay. Uh, driving a, a car that gets, you know, less than 18 miles of a gallon, you know, sorry. <laughs> sorry, I didn't mean to make you pass out there, but, you know, driving a vehicle that's not green, you know, sin, mortal sin. And so this is the world in which we live, where the conscience is so mangled that it's overly scrupulous about all these nonsensical things and um, completely calloused in terms of the most essential things. So we, uh, we looked at those things last week, those two um, ways in which the conscience becomes damaged. And now on page 161, and this is where we're at today, um, you have a counterfeit conscience, danger three, which uh, counterfish, counterfeit conscience, which uh, Wolfmuller is going to de- define as uh, a conscience that thinks it becomes good apart from the forgiveness of sins. So this is also the kind of, and I think that this is, an, I mean, the way I would describe this, again, maybe a little different than Wolf Mueller, and that's fine, but um, you can, I think you can think of a pagan person that if they do something and their conscience is afflicted, they don't confess to God in order to receive forgiveness. They try to do something to uh, make up for that. And maybe that's even going away. Maybe I'm showing that I'm becoming a dinosaur. But it used to be that when you, you know, when you wake up and you feel terrible, you go, okay, well, I need to go do X, Y, and Z so I feel like a good person again. It's a way of self-medicating the conscience. I think now that's almost entirely transferred to this, this asinine theory of self-care. Have you heard of this? Self-care. So now if I wake up in the morning as a 20-something, 30-something, 40-something with a bad conscience, I'm not going to go out and volunteer in the community or um, 
try to otherwise make amends or make atonement for my sins, try to right my conscience with my good works. Instead, I'm going to stay at home in my pajamas, take a bubble bath, maybe go get a massage later, and care for myself, and then at the end feel loved and try to medicate in this, in this way. All right, so a counterfeit conscience thinks that it becomes good apart from the forgiveness of sins. And, of course, this is wrong. And I've, the way I look at it, again, maybe a little different than Wolfmuller, that's fine, whatever. But um, the way I look at it is the conscience is defiled by sin in one way, shape, or form. That conscience is released by the gospel. Um, and the, the gospel alone can heal the conscience in that sense. But then when we're talking about the conscience becoming informed or rightly formed, um, that's a matter of the conscience being conformed into the law of God, so that, it's, so that it's no longer dull and excusing where God condemns, nor is it overly sharp where it's condemning where God permits. You see, so the, the healing of the conscience itself is, um, is when the conscience begins to take form the form of the Word of God, frankly. I mean, if you want to get specific, you could say the law. Okay? So, a counterfeit conscience. Um, let's look and see what Wolfmuller says on 161. Finally, a counterfeit conscience is a conscience that thinks that it becomes good apart from the forgiveness of sins. Most often, we attempt to give ourselves a good conscience by good works. When our conscience is troubled, we attempt to mollify it by being good. This is part of our fallen nature. Even non-Christians constantly do good works of charity to quote-unquote feel good about themselves. This is an attempt to quiet the conscience through the law, through obedience, and through works. It is true that doing good works and serving our neighbor often brings satisfaction, but it is not what gives us a good conscience. The forgiveness of sins won by the Lord Jesus through his death on the cross is the only way the Lord delivers a good conscience to us. Any other means from works of service to psychotherapy only give us the illusion of peace. All right, I think that that's a rather simple point, and I think we've made it. So those are the three ways that um, Wolf Mueller identifies that the conscience or our use of it can go awry. Any thoughts you have on that before we move on to page 162, uh, Wolfmuller's section on suffering in the Christian life? All right, very good. So, first thing that Wolfmuller is going to do is a, is a criticism of American Christianity. And this may resonate with you, uh, may not. Let's take a look at that. And then the remainder of it is honestly just scripture quotations with a few <laughs> with a few comments made in between so suffering in the christian life page 162 wolfmuller writes american christianity is focused on christian living discipleship excuse me discipleship and jesus follower and buzzwords like these describe the christian quote unquote living out his faith the focus is on sanctification But with all the talk about the Christian life, there is very little talk about suffering. In the Bible, these two go together. The Bible describes the Christian life as a life of suffering. Which, you know, of course, if you look at the, if you look at like American evangelicalism and just what it's doing in the last, at least since the 90s, let's just say the last three or four decades, what its its whole MO is we're going to leverage business principles in order to better market the gospel. We see businesses thriving and succeeding. We're going to emulate that. Thus, I mean, this is really, if it's getting at the heart of why evangelicalism looks like it does now and really didn't even 30 or 40 years ago. It looked more conservative. It looked more churchly. And this has been the experience of a number of people who have come here to faith is that the evangelical church that they were at one time happy with slid out from under their feet and changed so drastically and dramatically that it was unrecognizable. 
But it's this idea of marketing the gospel that then changes everything to um, entertainment-driven worship, and everybody's got to be having fun and having a good time and bring your lattes into church. And reverence and all of this stuff is completely lost. A sense of holiness is completely lost. A sense of churchliness is completely lost. And intentionally so, because these are perceived to be barriers, and you don't want any barriers or obstacles when you're going to try to draw people in. Okay, then what does that have to do with suffering? Are you going to draw in a whole bunch of customers by saying, here, take this product, it's going to hurt? (laughs) No! You're going to say, here, this is easy. It's fun. It's enjoyable. It makes you better. Everything you already are is great, and this will only make you better. There's an entire ethos in many big box churches where, of course, um, the very elderly are not able to go in because why? Yes, the music is so loud and thumping it risks cardiac event, blowing hearing aids out of the ears, uh, and they just can't stand it. Where are the children? Dismissed, out, they're not welcome. So what you end up with is a swath of late teens and early adults, early to mid-adults, and that's your church, and the presentation of of it is, hey, all of you are successful or on your way to success. All of you are healthy and well. There's no weakness on one end of the age spectrum or the other. There's no dirty diapers, whether they be young or old. There's none of that in the church. There's just the beautiful, happy people who are in their late teens to uh, maybe, maybe 50s or 60s. That's about it. That's about it. Okay, and again, what is, what is that trying to present? That your life is going great, and this is only going to make it better. You're a winner in life. You're going to be a winner in spiritual life. And so this is where you get the, like, the life coaching and all of this, uh, uh, 10 steps to improve this and 10 steps to improve that. And that's why many evangelical sermons, when you look at that, are, are, are largely indistinguishable from TED Talks. Are you aware of TED Talks? Yeah, these ideas that you've got, a, you've got an expert on a stage who's up there speaking to a bunch of very successful, wealthy people saying, hey, this is an innovative idea. This is a way to improve your business practice or life. And that's largely what's going on in many evangelical churches, big box churches. Okay, so once you get all of this, you understand that then a theology of suffering doesn't work. A theology that focuses on the cross, specifically the crucifixion, doesn't work. Of course, that's why there's no crucifixes in there. That's why there's usually no crosses in there. An altar, we all know, is a place of sacrifice. That's why the altar isn't there, and so on and so forth. All right, but I just want you to, I'm not trying to pick on people. I'm not trying to pick on these churches, but I am trying to show you that, like, this is part of a whole package and ethos, and it's not just like, oh, well, these people like light shows, and you guys like pyramids. <laughs> oh, these people like drum sets. You like a crucifix. It's different than that. It's uh, more encompassing and holistic than that. All right, so as Wolf Miller's critiquing this, then you've got all this talk of being a disciple, being a Jesus follower, living out your faith, quote-unquote, but rarely, rarely is there talk about suffering. And he continues, now this is kind of an even more extreme version in the next paragraph. In fact, he writes, many TV preachers describe the Christian life as a life without suffering. The quote-unquote health and wealth teachers of the prosperity gospel take this to the extreme. These false teachers present the Christian life as your best life now. A life of spiritual and especially physical blessings in abundance. According to the prosperity gospel, sickness, poverty, even too many red lights on the way back to work (laughs) are signs of a lack of God's blessings. And these point to a deeper lack of faith. If you are suffering, you show yourself to be a false disciple of Jesus. This is a horrible and disastrous false teaching. But there is a subtle 
sanctification means less suffering doctrine in all of us. This is an important thing for us to all cue in on here. Wolf Miller continues, an inner Buddhist that thinks our suffering means we are far from Jesus and our troubles are indications of God's abandonment. Which is why I suspect troubles always stir up questions about God's location. Where is God in the midst of trouble? We ask the question because we think, without thinking, that God must keep suffering at arm's length. If we are suffering, God must keep us at arm's length. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that that's, I mean, that's true because we're always trying to find the way, and I I think as church, especially, we're always trying to find the way in which, hey, if we just do it this way, we're going to grow and thrive and be happy and there's not going to be any suffering. So everybody's trying to find this magical way, um, on the church level, that is. Of, uh, and, and so I think Wolf Mueller's point is right in this self-diagnosis, even on a corporate level. Now, on an individual level, it's true, too, because if you're suffering, immediately you think, what did I do to offend God? You know, what, what did I do to bring this upon myself? Why am I languishing under this? Um, how do I make sense of this? theologically. And the answer that we are likely to gather simply because we're all fish swimming in this American Christian fish tank is that we've somehow offended God, done something wrong, headed down the wrong path. That's why suffering has come. Wolf Mueller's point and my point as well would be that's a terrible way to look at it. That's really like it's the natural way to look at it but that's part of what we need to crucify in ourselves because it's a terrible way of looking at it in terms of theology. You can think very quickly of all the suffering in the Old Testament that God brought upon his saints even and explicitly when they were doing the right things. Isn't that basically the book of Job? It's basically the entire book of Job. Yeah. Please. So what does Jesus mean with uh, my yoke is light and easy? It's a great question. I don't think the yoke there, when Jesus says, um, uh, my yoke is light and my burden is easy, I don't think he's talking there at all about, Christi- about like, the Christian life, per se. I think he's talking about teaching. If you trace, okay, do you remember what a yoke is? Yeah. It goes on an oxen. So this is weird. So what is Jesus talking about? Like a, are you, where, Where's this theology and the rest of Jesus teaching about us being his oxen? It's absent. There's nothing there. So his yoke, um, if you trace that back, and I'm going to, having not prepared that specific question, I'm going to forget where. But if you trace this backwards to look for, like, where is Jesus getting this idea? What you find is that it's used, and I I think it's in the scriptures, though it may well have a reference in the Apocrypha as well. This idea that to take one's uh, someone's yoke upon you is to become rather like like their disciple so the way that a um a master uh, has oxen and he lays his yoke on them like claiming them as his own now you're mine you're my servant uh that that's more what jesus is talking about so his yoke, that is to be his disciple, particularly in the way of learning from him, that in itself is light and easy. I think where Jesus talks um, less about the learning aspect and more holistically about what the Christian life is, I think he would say, um, take up your cross daily and follow me. That's an cross, of course, you can think of Jesus bearing his cross to Golgotha. Um, you can think of Jesus dying on that cross. That We each are given a cross that we bear in that same image and to take it up daily and follow after him. I think Jesus, likewise, if he's talking about the whole of the Christian life, um, whoever loves his life will lose it. Whoever hates his life for my sake will gain it. Um, what does it profit a man to gain the whole world if he loses his soul. Um, And then we're going to look at a bunch of other scriptures in regard to suffering, so hopefully that will become clear. Anyway, what I've come to see that verse more as is like 
receiving the teachings of Jesus. They're sweet, they're light, they're joyful. I mean, even the law, when he teaches it, um, on account of his sparing us and saving us from its condemnation, even the, light bec- even the law becomes sweet and delightful. That's why Paul says, I delight in the law of God in my inner man. So I look at that verse specifically as receiving the teachings of Jesus. Now holding to, that, that's easy and light. Now holding to those teachings when the, when the satanic attacks and the worldly attacks and all of that comes on, that's take up your cross and follow me. So hopefully that clarifies. All right, good question. Anything else on um, what we talked about so far? Introducing suffering. I ran across this concept years ago to try to make it succinctly. Everybody is going to suffer. Mm, Are you going to suffer with or without Christ? Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, kind of the no one gets out of here alive <laughs> thing. Yeah, and nobody escapes the world without, without suffering. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, and we're going to talk about that. We're going to talk as we go along. Uh, Wolfmina did a wonderful job of gathering and cataloging a bunch of scriptures for us and talk about our attitude towards suffering. And, okay, when suffering comes, how do we think about it? How do we respond to it spiritually? All right, so as to this idea that um, sanctification means less suffering, which we all kind of harbor in one way, shape, or form. If I'm doing things right, I'll be rewarded. Um, if, I'm, if I'm suffering, it must mean that I've messed things up. Wolf Mueller says in bold print here, this is wrong, totally wrong. And I agree. Here's his argument. First, God is not a stranger to suffering. The cross shows us this. The prophet Isaiah even gives Jesus the name Man of Sorrows. No one ever suffered like Jesus suffered in the Garden of Gethsemane and on the cross. All the sins of all humanity and the wrath of God that goes with them is piled on Jesus. When we see Jesus crying out on the cross, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Then we ought at least to know that God is not a stranger to suffering. Second, Jesus teaches us that the Christian is also not a stranger to suffering. When Jesus is calling his disciples, he doesn't bid them, Take up your lazy boy and follow me, (laughs) but take up your cross and follow me adding daily to the command. And then he's citing here Luke 9.23 and 14.27. The Christian life is a life of suffering. The yoke of Jesus is an easy yoke, not because it lacks suffering, but because it doesn't lack Jesus. It doesn't lack forgiveness. So there's Wolf Mueller's attempt to kind of reconcile those two ideas. I just take them as different sides of the same coin. Um, Do with that what you will. Wolf Miller continues, When we follow Jesus, we follow the one who suffered. The only Bible passage that teaches us to follow the example of Jesus gives us the, uh, excuse me, the example of Jesus gives us the example of Jesus' suffering. So, 1 Peter 2, verses 20 through 24. For what credit is it If when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure. I think this is such a great way to start the conversation. Because not all of our suffering is like this godly, holy thing. Like what if we do something stupid? (laughs) What if we're a jerk? What if we do something illegal and suffering comes upon us? We, We can't then make ourselves a holy martyr under that suffering either. You know, you can't rob a bank, get thrown in prison, and then perceive yourself to be some great martyr. Okay, so that this clears the air and gives us a, a helpful category already. What credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. 
Isn't that a marvelously strange way of putting it? I'm still thinking about that. I've been thinking about it for a long time. I don't have any great answer for you. I'm sorry. But this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. I think, I think at bare minimum, what would you say? That God looks upon it and is pleased. That's a bare minimum kind of statement here. That when you do good and suffer for it, and endure in doing good, you're not deterred by the suffering, then this is a pleasing thing in the sight of God, a gracious thing in the sight of God. It may be gracious because it ties us into the grace of Christ on the cross, and he may be seeing an image and reflection of Christ on the cross who does the ultimate good and suffers ultimately and endures in that for our sake, and we're emulating that, and thus it's a gracious thing from his grace to us, from his grace to our grace, an organic whole. Peter continues, For to this you have been called. Wait, to what you have been called? To do good and suffer for it if necessary. For to this you have been called because Christ also suffered for you. You can see the reciprocal and organic nature of these things. causes me to see the language of gracious thing the way I do. Leaving you an example. Okay, so Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example. Christ crucified is not only for the forgiveness of your sins. Christ crucified becomes an example or a pattern or a template of what the Christian life looks like. Doing good and suffering for it, being faithful to God and bearing the cost. So once more, just that full sentence. For to this you have been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Let's, let me parse that out very quickly here. This is, um, to me, one of the greatest proofs of his divinity. Because what human being has ever, ever in the history of the world been reviled and not reviled in return? Or um, suffered and not threatened in return? What human being in the history of the world has received unjust evil and kept his mouth shut? And and I'll tell you to this day, that to me is just amongst the most impossible things. Because you can't even help it. Your thoughts are already there. Probably your mouth is already there. And if it's within your keeping you're, or within your doing, you're already scheming about what you're going to do about it. <laughs> Unbelievable. Pastor. Yes, please, please. Isn't that the story of Job? The story of, the story of Job. Okay, tell me. Well, he really didn't complain too much. I'll oh. Over. Isn't that the story of Job in the sense that he didn't uh, object? He was kind of submissive, and, and everyone else was telling him, you've got to go nuts here. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Uh, yeah, it's interesting. I don't, I don't know. Maybe I would describe it as a little more nuanced than that, but I, I, can, I can see your point. Um, I, think, I think to me the idea about Job, I, he does, I, I mean, I don't know. I don't want to quibble over the language of complaint. But I think, what's, I think what's interesting in particular about Job is that he won't let go of God. He won't, he won't quit. He doesn't, in seeking to understand what's happened to him and why this makes sense and why this is just and right, he won't let go of God. And um, whereas his friends are always telling him, like, hey, this is on you. You should figure this out. You know, God has done nothing to you. You should relinquish your claim on him. His wife just says, curse God and die. So everybody's trying to get him to just 
salve himself and heal himself, and he knows how deeply he's wounded, and he's just not, he's not going to let go of God until God addresses that. In that respect, it's almost kind of like Jacob wrestling with God, and won't let go until you bless me. Yeah. That wrestling with God. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, here I think, I think this, I mean, to me, it's like Jesus as, as the lamb before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. You remember that line from Isaiah 53? That's, that's, to me, is the most remarkable thing. And if you pay attention to Jesus in his trial, it's just astounding. What he says and doesn't say is I mean, if that's what it is to be a human being, you see how far we all are away from being human. <laughs> it's something else. All right, so that's the, maybe that's the first point, is when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Now, this last phrase is absolutely essential. Otherwise, it's Christianity as doormat. It's Christianity as masochism. It's, I'm going to suffer for suffering's sake because that's what's right. No, that's not what's right. You're doing the right thing. You're suffering for it, which is wrong. But you're not addressing that wrong personally. You are what? Continuing to entrust yourself to him who judges justly. To the Father. It's not that you're just sort of like, there's sometimes this, this Christian ethos, and it is anything but Christian, that, oh, it's, it's my job to just be the dog that keeps getting kicked, or the floor mat that just keeps getting, you know, cleaning shoes or whatever. That's not Christianity. Christianity is, in fact, that's a violation of your conscience to think that way because your conscience is going, well, I, I deserve this. I, I should just accept this. No, that's not the ethos at all. I'm, I'm doing what's right. I know it's right. And I'm doing it for the sake of the Father. And when others afflict me for that, my faith is, and my uprightness, the rectitude of my conscience, is precisely that I know it's right. I know it's pleasing to the Father. I know this is an injustice. But I know that He's in charge, not me. And I'm not going to go all eye for eye, tooth for tooth here, why? Not because vengeance is wrong, but because vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. And so you are simply commending this into the Father's hands, knowing that he judges justly. And I think for us as fallen human beings, of course, just this recognition that we can't judge justly. Not in a perfect sense. So the Father will sort it all out. All right, so again, I mean, I don't mean to belabor the point, but I really am glad that he grabbed the hold of this text as his first text to introduce this topic, because this is a master class. You really cannot study this long enough or deeply enough. Christ is our example and pattern in these things. When evil happened to him, you know, specifically for the highest good of keeping the faith, but it's true for any good, he doesn't... um, He doesn't revile, he doesn't threaten, he doesn't seek vengeance, but entrusts himself to God who judges justly. And that's our pattern. Peter ends it this way. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. So there is the atonement, as we would call it. There is him bearing our sins, that we might have his righteousness. And also, though, a pattern, and that's the last clause here, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. He's dying on the cross to our sin and living to righteousness. That pattern is ours as well. Okay, so Wolfmuller's comment, this is astonishing. We have the answer to the old question, what would Jesus do? He suffers. He suffers patiently and quietly. If we follow the example of Jesus, we suffer. In a very profound sense, our sanctification is simply getting better at suffering. 
Yeah, I would agree with that statement. I would agree it's getting better at enduring. A lot of Christian strength and Christian growth is that this force, this thing that happens would have completely rocked me and destroyed my thinking, my conscience, my soul, my life. But God's brought me to the point where now it comes and I can endure it. It's been here, done that, know the template, know what I need to do doesn't make it any more comfortable, but at least it gives you this sense of like, okay, God's given me the strength to handle this. All right, so I like that. I like that. Sanctification is getting better at suffering. And I think we can, um, we can see here too that, uh, well, well, we'll think about this, but there's, new, there's nuanced ways we can talk about this. We just need to realize that, you know, as the Psalms teach us to pray, we have many fierce and horrible enemies all around us, the devil and the demons, and they um, afflict and, uh, people and dement people and um, do all kinds of things that cause them to do gross and manifest evil. Um, we see that world, and so, sometimes we see it in our world. You go, how could a human being do this? And the answer is really properly, well, they couldn't, not in and of themselves. It requires Satan and his wicked ones to so afflict and torment and deceive this person that then this person becomes willing to do these great atrocities and manifest evils. So what we can see too is, you know, as we're seeking God, um, we're going to see parts of our life as being, we're being afflicted precisely because we're trying to do the right thing. And we, we shouldn't shy away from being supernatural about that. In the same way we confess that the good angels are all around us and watching us every day and protecting us and guiding us, um, there are evil angels that are seeking to harm us and afflict us and all the rest. There's all this stuff we can't see, um, but the scriptures tell us it's there. Okay, well, let me pause there and see if you have any reflections on kind of this foundation that Wolf Mueller has laid via 1 Peter 2. There's a hand up front here. Well, I was thinking <coughs> when you were talking about uh, churches that uh, try to empower you. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's human nature, and they run to that because they want to take charge. They want to be in charge. Mm. And if they're a whole person, they can do it. You know, so... Uh, some of those churches, I think, really feed on that. Mm-hmm. And it's very humbling to be a Christian where you have to let Christ carry the burden, where you have to absent yourself from the power to take care of things. Mm-hmm. That's really humbling. Yeah. And um, I just think it's something in Manifestly Evil that says, no, you should take care of it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. If you're a really strong Christian, you'll be able to do that. Mm-hmm. So, for what it's worth. Yeah, yeah. I think that, yeah, I think you're, you make great observations. I don't know that I'd add anything to it. I think it's a good observation. It's, a, yeah, what we want to do, I think what we want to do as American Christians ourselves is get back into the scriptures and the ethos and the way of thinking of Jesus and his apostles and the early church and the martyrs. We want to have that faith um, they're seeing things in ways that are more true than how we're seeing them and how the church today is teaching us to see them. So we want to dig back into that original soil. Okay, so why does God allow Christians to suffer? And the answer is going to be surprising that suffering is um, actually like the best thing for you and the best thing for me. When good things come, you pretty much say, thank you. When people praise you, what do you gain from that? At best, kind of an encouragement to do that again. But blessings and praises are otherwise kind of dead ends. That's all that's there. When affliction comes... When suffering comes, it's almost entirely the opposite. It's not the end, but the beginning, and the beginning of some amount of growth that God has in store for you. 
On page 164, um, Wolfmuller introduces us to this thought of Luther. It's not native to Luther. It, this kind of thinking didn't begin in the 16th century. This is Luther's take on it and how we all know it. But one of the key ways that God uses suffering is to make us into theologians. And there's this threefold way. So, wait a minute. Let's stop and think about that, though. Because in the language of theologian, we immediately think of like, well, are you a philosopher? What would make you a philosopher? Maybe going to school and getting a philosophy degree. Are you a lawyer? What would make you a lawyer? Going and getting your JD. Are you a theologian? What would make you a theologian? Maybe going and getting your MA in theology or a BA in in theology at minimum or maybe you have to go to seminary. What we want to do is, is kind of wipe our minds of all that American way of thinking. In this respect, theology actually isn't a helpful word. I think Vicar heard me ranting about this. Maybe you were ranting too. I can't remember. But theology isn't a helpful word because theologos is like in English gets translated as the study of God, which is really rather absurd. I won't launch onto the whole thing, but it's rather absurd. Like, let me put you under a microscope and study you. No, you can study his word. But even that is like the first step. The truth of the study is like, well, what does he mean? And if that's where we stop, if that's theology is, well, this is where he means. And then we run off to some other thing to, you know, to study and figure out what it means. And then we just leave it there. We haven't even begun to be theologians. Once we understand what it means, our studies end and the task of, we don't even have an English word for it, but the task of Theology proper begins, which is now I hear what God is saying. What does this mean? Right? Are you kind of following here? So the same thing happens when we think of theologians, that a theologian is not somebody who goes and gets a degree. Every Christian is a theologian. And what we're really talking about here is not that you become some kind of expert in the ancient languages or some kind of biblical encyclopedia, but rather that you come to know God ever increasingly and ever more fully. So through these three things, suffering being one of them, this is how God draws you into a deeper and more thorough understanding of who he is and relationship with him. You come to know him ever more fully as your father. Okay, So hopefully that makes sense when... Again, in English, this all has a tendency to get distorted. When we say that um, these things make a theologian, that is to say, these are the ways in which you come to know the living God more fully and relate to him more truly, more accurately, rightly. All right, so right on the uh, first full paragraph of 164, Wolfmuller writes, third, we see now a purpose in our suffering. Martin Luther taught that three things made a theologian. Prayer, I don't think he puts the Latin in it, but that's like oratio. It has a nice ring. I don't know if he puts it anywhere in here. So prayer, oratio, meditation, meditatio. And that's meditation on the Lord's word. It's not like sitting cross-legged thinking about nothing. And tentatio, that is temptation or suffering. So oratio, meditatio, tentatio. That's the threefold. Latin, it just has a nice ring, doesn't it? But prayer, meditation, and suffering are the ways in which God teaches us. Now again, this idea isn't just simply born out of Luther's brain. Um, there's a deep tradition of this in the church and ultimately it harkens all the way back to the scriptures. Wolfmuller very wisely cites Psalm 119 next because this is a, a fantastic way of explaining this teaching. Usually what's going on in American Christianity, I mean very quickly, is uh, mostly meditation on the Lord's Word, but then not even that, more like the study of God's Word. Oh, okay, that's what it said. And nothing fuller. But to think of it as a living Word that is speaking to you, 
Again, not in such a way that it's like becomes like, uh, what does the Bible mean to me? That's not the point. But the point is, what does the Bible mean? Let's get that straight. Now, how do I apply that to my life, thinking, relationship to God, relationship to others, circumstances, etc.? Okay, that's more. And then meditation is just constantly, I mean, there's lots of different ways to meditate. I'm not trying to say like, this is the only way, but it's just constantly being mindful of God's word. That's it. It's just playing with God's word, thinking about God's word, getting it wrong a dozen different ways before you get it right, thinking about it in ways that where you finally get to a dead end and go, well, that's the wrong way to think about it. And then you go back and think in a different way. Um, What you're going to find as you do this, you're going to find all kinds of mysteries and things you don't know, and you're going to find tracks that lead you in places you'd never imagined and into ways of thinking um, and, and ways in which you see the scriptures speaking that you never would have thought possible. So this is the joy and this is the deepening of our faith, this meditating on the Lord's word. I think there's a collect in um, the Lutheran church, something like, it goes something like this, that we would um, read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest. That's exactly like if you parse that out, to read or hear the word of God, um, to mark it is to specifically take note of it, to lock it into your mind. And that's a lot of, that's a lot of, by the way, why I went to church and didn't get anything out of it. What was the word of God there? Yeah, well, then you should have got something out of it. Did you lock on to anything? Did you mark anything? Um, Mark it, learn it. Do I have objectively what it means? Do I have objectively the right meaning? I'm not just reading this idiosyncratically into my own situation. That'd be very bad. What does God think about me today? You open up the Bible, Jesus wept. Oh, no. (laughs) So you don't want to be idiosyncratic about this. You want to mark it, learn it. And then what's that last one? It's weird. Inwardly digest. Yeah. (laughs) So until until this thing becomes a part of you and a part of your... Really, it's, I don't know, I don't want to sound too woo-woo here, but it really, it really starts to shape your soul. You can't see otherwise. You can't think otherwise. And the great snowball effect of all this is you begin to be completely weird um, in the sense that you see the world in an entirely different way than you did naturally. And you might increasingly see the world in an entirely different way than your average American. And all of that's good. Very, very good. Okay, so that's meditation, and I think you know. I think much of a American Christianity like doesn't even bother with the meditation. It's more just like reading or applying idiosyncratically. But meditation's much deeper than that. And then prayer is part and parcel of that. If the if Christianity is just nothing more than God downloading information into your brain and then you carrying that information around, then that's falling short of being a theologian. You have to pray, um, that is to say, like there has to be that active living engagement and relationship between you and God on the basis of his word. You know, we are all born into this world into which God has been speaking. So we hear what he's saying, and then prayer is responding to that. It's learning how to speak what he speaks. I think this is what's so beautiful. When the disciples ask Jesus, how do we pray? He doesn't say, okay, sit, make sure you're facing east. Make sure you're, you're on, on your knees with your arms outstretched in front of you. Make sure your head's covered or not covered. He doesn't go into the technique at all, nor does he say, when they say, teach us how to pray, nor does he respond, Okay, well, like these are some general thoughts or ideas about the content of your prayer. He literally put, takes a prayer and puts it in their mouths. That's the beauty of the Lord's Prayer. It's the beauty of the Psalms. It's the beauty of the Scriptures. God says, if you're going to talk to me, this is the language. This is the way. And he sticks that language. And then from that language that he puts into our mouths in the case of prayer, or puts into our ears in the case of his word more broadly, that's what initiates prayer. So as as then 
you are meditating on that word and praying that word that when we all began praying the Lord's Prayer, we had no idea what it meant relative to what we know now. And that continues to grow through our whole lives. But then that, that develops into a conversation. You begin speaking back to God and reflecting on what he's said to you. And it becomes a conversation. Not the kind of conversation that you hear of all the time in American evangelicalism, which is just a terrible, shallow perversion of this, which is just, you know, God, told me, God laid this on my heart. God told me to tell you. Um, me and God were talking. And it's like indistinguishable between you and your imaginary friend and completely detached from the idea of meditatio and oratio and these two things combining together. All right, but the last ingredient then is the ingredient that's completely out of your power. I mean, properly speaking, all of this is just participate in it. But what's completely outside of your power um, is suffering than what God sends and what's not, though, like that's when meditation and prayer, ratio and meditatio, really find their grounding and their, their bearings. And it becomes not in any way a kind of intellectual or spiritual pursuit. It just becomes the essence of survival and life and meaning and all pretenses stripped away. That's really what I mean. So... All pretense to prayer and meditation is stripped away when God afflicts us. So these are the ways, though, in which he draws us nearer to himself. I always think of this as the potter and the clay. It's the way he's shaping us and carving off certain parts and uh, molding us, painful as it may be, into his own image, into the image of Jesus. And um, making us fit vessels to receive the everlasting blessings that he's going to pour into us as we go into our eternal rest. All right, so Psalm 119. Wolf Mueller writes, Psalm 119 is called the Great Torah Psalm. The Torah, of course, are the first five books, the books of Moses, often called the Law or the Torah. It is a massive acrostic. Each of the 22 letters of the Hebrew alphabet have an eight-verse stanza. And in almost every one of the 176 verses, the scriptures are extolled. It is teaching us how to read the Bible. And it says a lot about suffering. In fact, some of the best things about suffering you find in the Old Testament are in this psalm. So, now quoting, This is my comfort in my affliction, that your promise gives me life. So what's the psalmist reflecting on here? That in the midst of temptation and suffering, you are clinging to the promise of God. And in that promise, you have life. So uh, Luther will say in, uh, in another place that God gives us a promise and then attacks that promise um, via suffering. So, I love you very much. You are my baptized child. And then he attacks that promise with whatever specific sufferings you're enduring. And he does so for the sake that we would cling to that promise, even when it appears to be absolutely untrue. And you can think of this like, what is the extreme, extreme moment of this where Jesus prays not just you have forsaken me, but my God, my God, that is the prayer of faith. He's clinging to the promises. He's grasping a hold of God, even in the midst of unfathomable circumstances, even in the midst of God turning his back on him and indeed forsaking him. God will never forsake us the way he forsook Jesus on the cross. We can be certain of that. But there's a template and a model here that the more it feels like God is forsaking us or despises us or punishes us, the more we need to take our Lord and Master Jesus Christ into our minds and say, I need to grab a hold of him even harder. (laughs) I need to grip hold of his promises and trust his promises and trust that that this is all for my good. Okay, so this is my comfort in my affliction, that your promise gives me life. Verse 50 of Psalm 119. 
Now quoting again, before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I keep your word. Ah, so it's affliction that drives us back to his word. And I can tell you as a Christian and as a pastor, this never stops. <laughs> you think, I mean, you, you have these fleeting foolish thoughts in your mind like, okay, I'm good. I'm Nope. Here comes the affliction, and now you're learning some other part of God's word that you've never understood, uh, that you've never even thought to understand. <clears throat> so, before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I keep your word. Verse 67. Now, quoting again, it is good for me that I was afflicted, that I might learn your statutes. Oh, man. I need to embroider that in on a pillow. Isn't that, isn't that a fantastic statement? It is good for me that I was afflicted, that I might learn your statutes. I mean, even if you're the most disciplined person in the world and you're reading your Bible all the time, aside from afflictions, it doesn't take this visceral, um, absolutely necess- necessary quality, this life and death quality, Um, That's the blessing of affliction. That affliction drives us not just to the statutes, but to learn the statutes. Wolf Miller writes, Affliction, tentatio. Uh, So uh, you'll also run across this like anfektung in German. It means the same thing. So just if you are hearing these Lutheran buzzwords, tentatio is the Latin, anfektung is the German Suffering in English doesn't quite encapsulate the meaning of those two words, but I think it's the best we can do. So affliction, tentatio, suffering is good, Wolfmuller writes, for it teaches us the Lord's word. It teaches us to trust in the Lord and to live with hope. Suffering teaches us to pray. In fact, in our suffering, we are being shaped by God. Consider 2 Corinthians, Paul's treatise on suffering for God's word. Now Paul writes, But we have this treasure, namely the gospel, the forgiveness of sins in Christ. We have this treasure in jars of clay. That's us. <laughs> to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. You can see how this is a variation of his strength being made perfect in our weakness. Paul continues, We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not driven to despair persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. So if you want the life of Jesus in your body, you have to have also the death of Jesus in your body. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So, in other words, I think here, and some of this truthfully is explicit, explicitly about the apostolic office, but it, that certainly reflects even in the life of an average Christian But this idea that to become a Christian is not just to assent to a doctrinal statement or to go to church and wave your hands once a week. It's rather to have, to become a new creature such that the death and life of Christ are manifest in you and in your being. So it's inescapable. And you've got this, you've got this great promise that if we're humbled with him, we will be exalted with him, if we're crucified, crucified with him, we'll be raised with him. If we uh, are 
humbled or humiliated with him, we will be glorified with him. And so this is all part of the whole and part of the work that God is doing in us. And so, if anything, it's just a matter of trying to perceive aright what God is doing in and through suffering in our lives. And I think just with, I know I'm in my last minute here, and I will say that one of the great climaxes of this, because there are things that you suffer or that people suffer, that suffering that you see in the world where it's just incomprehensible that there would ever be any good to come from it. In instances like these and in other such instances, I think the climax and, and telos of suffering is that you receive not a neatly given answer. Well, this is exactly what it meant. This is exactly why it was necessary. This is, but that all of that remains reserved. The climax and telos of suffering being not that we have answers, but that we simply have God. And that, to me, has always struck me as the, the profundity of the ending of Job. Is God says, yes, I'm so good that in due time you will understand spiritually. Yes, I'm so good that even temporally, remember at the end of Job, I'll restore it. I think that's a hint to the new heavens and the new earth for us. But the real climax of it is, I won't give you the answer, I'll give you myself. And that's enough. That's an, how could it be anything other than enough to have God himself with you and to have that suffering, whatever it may be, even if it's completely incomprehensible and unreconcilable to you, if it's that very thing that leads you to God, then that's its value. <laughs> that's its point and purpose. All right, let's pause here. I'll stick around if you have any questions. But next week, we'll um, finish out suffering. Maybe just a couple comments before we move on. Um, And then we're going to talk about love and the neighbor. The Lord be with you.